You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Romans chapter 7, so we uh, went through the rest of chapter 6 and then to 7 last week, and we ended last week saying that we're going to have to re- revisit this uh, 5 and 6, uh, say so there's more, a, little, a little more to talk about there. I wanted to revisit that phrase in the flesh in order to understand it in light of the context uh, of this letter. And uh, there'll be a lot to unpack today on the word flesh and the Greek and how the NIV in the, in the 80s uh, changed that. And then uh, also the, the rest of the context of Romans 7 and all that and the different interpretations that surround that. So <laughs> there's a lot there. So we'll start at 5. Like we saw last week, he said, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So the reason why we need to understand this is obviously to understand the chapter better, uh, to understand the language better. And the reason that many believe that Paul is going to start speaking um, first person of himself as a, as a Christian um, and that, that brings up a whole host of uh, questions and confusion. So the main point to the, this upcoming section of text then is what people think, uh, many point to it as a normative Christian life or Christian experience in life. So we're going to talk about that. Now, our, we, we can obviously say it's truthful that sometimes our, our experience agrees with the Bible, but sometimes our experience can steer us away from what the author is actually trying to convey in the letter. So, w- with the word I of Romans 7, uh, so, some are going to say that's Paul. Paul's saying it's him. All, some are going to say you should take it with a grain of salt. All right, like, but yes, you and I, we feel the struggle of sin. But that doesn't mean that's what Paul's going to be talking about here in this, this chunk of, of text. The point is, we should not interpret the Bible based on our experience. Okay, Romans 7 cannot be understood apart from its relationship with Romans 8. The two chapters belong together. Romans 7 gives the problem, which is the law's inability to deliver one from sin. Romans 8 gives the solution, which is that divine deliverance through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So Paul speaks of being in the flesh in 5 as a past experience. While we were living in the flesh, he says. 
So Paul followed the Hebrew understanding when using this term. He made use of its wide variety of meanings, and it has a wide variety of meanings, but he applied the term in different contexts depending on what he was teaching. So he, he made a particular use of the term when writing of the frailty of man and um, also the solidarity with his representative head as uh, of all humanity of Adam. Okay, now we've looked at the body of, body of Adam, body of Moses, body of Christ. But what Paul did not do was use flesh in the Greek way or Greek understanding to teach the Roman church that it was sinful. All right, this is how it was a Hellenistic meaning of flesh that the body, the actual physical body was a sinful thing. Now the NIV took this word sarx, which is S-A-R-X, and made it sinful nature, and it was a bad translation. Um, the Greek word sarx directly translated means simply flesh, all right? So Paul says, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, right? It's this imperfect tense of the verb aroused shows that this as a pattern of an unbeliever, an unregenerate life. And he says that these sinful passions were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death, all right? Again, the body here would have to be in context with what we've already looked at, the body of Moses, not a physical individual body. The members are the individuals of the body of Moses. You guys did all this work, the sacrifices, the dietary laws, the feast days, all of these things. None of them made you righteous. It produced, all it produced was death. And it's because the old covenant, he said in 2 Corinthians 3, he refers to it as a ministry of death. Okay, so this is going to be a different way of looking at these verses if you've looked at them and studied them before. And I think overall it makes, it makes sense. Now, uh, I'm not going to say, you know, again, be a Berean, search it out for yourself if you have issues with anything that I'm putting forth here. But it's simply uh, trying to get to that first century understanding. Uh, it's really hard to look at the Bible through Western eyes and understand we're so far removed, okay? In verse 6, he says, But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he's, there's this passive voice of this word released, which indicates that the Lord is the one who released them. And it, he released them from the law. And the context shows that it was through the death of Christ. Okay, So release means to render inoperative. To make null and void. So their covenant with the body of Moses, all right, the Mosaic law, with the law, was broken by their death in Christ. So now they enter in this new covenant. The law barred them from being in union with Christ. It was only death to the law that could free them from the law to belong to Christ. So Paul, given that, that analogy of marriage that we saw. And he was talking about Israel being married to the flesh, living under the law, uh, was bringing about the sinful passions. So you can't 
obey the law while in this flesh. The law arouses sin. It links up with sin to bring about this death. The law hinders life in the spirit. You have to be released, released from it so that you may serve in the newness of the spirit. Now, to the Jews, re hearing this, this was all very offensive. They accused Paul of preaching against the law and said it was a negative thing. Paul uh, connects the law to the sin and says, they're, they're not, you guys aren't under the law. That they had had to die to the law. And a thoughtful listener to Paul may have thought something like this. All right now, Paul, you just said in chapter 6 that the believer has died with respect to sin. <clears throat> and now here, the believer has died with respect to the law. So to be fair, right, the Jew, to the Jews, it would seem as if Paul is putting sin and the law in the same category here and making them synonymous. But this is what he addresses in the next verse. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, here's that word, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to, to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, law here is obviously, it's only the Mosaic law. And in order to make Paul you know, relevant, if you will, all right, um, theologians have read law as though it referred to a general moral law which all humans lived under. But for Paul, the law is Torah. This is Jewish law. It's the first five books of the Bible. We cannot, we must not change the meaning of law to attempt to make Paul's words relevant to us. So Paul's response is like, no, they're not one and the same. They're not synonymous. The law is an expression of the character of God. It is not sin. It's good, it's holy. We know this. And now we have to start thinking because of that word I. And he is speaking with the words with this word, and this is where we get the view of, well, okay, this is the Apostle Paul saying I here. So it, this must be what it's like to be a believer, or maybe perhaps he was a non-believer here. We'll get to that. But for the first, now I'm really, I'm really starting to tease this out a little ahead here, but it's all of this, but 14 and on, is where people will see it. But, you know, why do I do these things? I hate it and all these things, right? But for the first 300 years of church history, <clears throat> I've been in this all, you know, all week. So for the first 300 years in church history, everyone saw this section as an unbeliever. And then Pelagius and Augustine showed up on the scene and they started to debate, okay? So one view is that the I is autobiographical. And it's denoting the experience of Paul. All right, this is the predominant view, stating that Paul describes from his own experience how sin took advantage of the entrance of the law. And Paul relates his experience as a, a young Jewish boy when he became a son of the commandment at the age of 13. And until this time, Paul had not realized his own sin. But once he became aware of the requirement of the law, he saw himself as a sinner. That's the predominant view. A second view is the I refers to Adam's experience with God's commandment in the Garden of Eden. And yet a third 
<laughs> There's many views. A third is that the eye refers to Israel's reception of the law when it was given at Mount Sinai and their transgression and their subsequent death. Now, this explanation would account for the historical narrative and progression that we'll see in the next few verses. Many today, including myself, we see it pointing back to Sinai, which is a repeat of what happened in Eden. Okay? Because by telling the story of Israel, Paul is echoing the story of Adam as well. And honest, honestly, Adam is the only one that could honestly say, I was alive apart from the law. Okay, so Paul, it seems to me, Paul is telling the story of Israel in the first person, singular, identifying himself with them. And this is a way, that in, in a way in which they spoke and in a way in which they wrote in this time. And he says, I would not have known that I was in Adam and condemned had the law not revealed that to me. So the law cannot be, not be sin because it reveals sin. So Paul's first argument is that the law has made Adam slash Israel known what sin is. The law is in direct conflict with sin. It presents the very standard that sin opposes, right? That's God's standard. And what's God's standard? Perfection. There were 613 laws, all right? So the problem's not the law. The problem is the condition of man. He is in Adam. He is spiritually dead. He's a slave to sin. The law says you shall not covet rather than you can covet. So we see in verse 7 that the law reveals sin. So apart from God giving a command, we would have no knowledge of sin. And he says, but sin, in verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So again, in the literal translation, we have, it's not just sin, it's the sin. And the sin is taking the opportunity. Sin is seen here as a principality that uses the commandment to arouse sin. Now, in Adam's case, sin didn't exist in the human race before the giving of the commandment. Before God gave them the command to not eat of that, that fruit in, in Eden, all right? And, and, and be, but then he did. Before God gave that, uh, Satan, though, had no opportunity. The serpent had no opportunity, if you will, okay, to seduce them. <laughs> But the giving of the command changed that, and the serpent seized the opportunity to challenge man's love for and obedience to his creator. He put doubt in their minds. He challenged them on who they really were. So, through Adam's disobedience, he acted like an adulterer by rejecting God's love and embracing sin, and the covenant with God then was uh, terminated. Man entered into this relationship with sin, and the law was powerless to change it. 9 and 10. 
I, I was once alive apart from the law. Now, could Paul say he was alive apart from the law? I believe the only person, as I said, that could honestly say that was Adam. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So again, you, I, I, just, I can't stress it enough. I know I've stressed it. The entire time, uh, I, I've been your preacher, but I'm always context, context, context. Look a few verses uh, before, a few verses after, and then that's immediate context. And then surrounding context, the whole context. Again, you have to think and remember the surrounding context, okay? All of this points back to when he began this section, if you like, all the way back to chapter 5. So we ask then how is Paul using alive and died here? Because that can only be true of Adam. And in chapter 5, 12, it said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So the death here is the same death that we see in our text. Adam was alive. He was in fellowship with God. And when he sinned, he died. That spiritual deadness that happened immediately and made him lose fellowship with God. He died spiritually. And, and Paul, Paul's re referring to when the serpent took that opportunity to seduce Adam with the false promises. And this brought an end to that fellowship with God and established humanity's bondage to sin. He knew the command was given for positive reasons, and it was to bless and protect man. But Adam's uh, thoughts became perverse in believing the serpent's lie, and in accusing God of malice was the problem. All right? Therefore, humankind, through its disobedience, died to the relationship with God for which it had been created. So originally, the law was ordained to life. God, man, God made man perfect, because he, or, you know, people will want to debate that, but God made man good and very good. He saw man, it's all very good. <laughs> he gave him a perfect law. And as long as he obeyed, that law justified him, and the law was his, a friend and a protector. That's why it was there. This is why we, we have rules and laws, right? I mean, the same, it, it, it's, it's funny how people say religion has you know, no, no, uh, no say here or anything like that. Like everything in society we've based on and <laughs> all of this, like we have laws because God had given laws. We know these things work. Therefore, our good, they protect us and they help us live better lives. But men rebel, right? So man did rebel against law. And the, the law sentenced him to death. It became his jailer and it threw him into prison, if you will, okay? So Paul sees sin as this predator. It's waiting to attack. It's waiting to kill. The serpent saw his opportunity in Eden when the command was given and he realized that the law of God that was given for man's blessing could be used against Adam. So he, he enticed him uh, to disobey and by doing so he secured this, uh, this decisive victory that he had planned on getting, if you will. 
He turned man against God, put man into a position of guilt before the one who loved him. 11 and 12. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, so Paul, he, he's answering that question that he raised where he asks, is the law bad? Is it sin? Right? He's still on that. Um, also, he, he mentioned you shall not covet. So people will say you shall not covet is through the command here. But again, we've, we've looked, we've got to point back. In ancient literature, uh, I'll add that usually if a person or two people or more were mentioned in the text, Whoever is first mentioned, if they bring up I or this or uh, some sort of an example or illustration, they're most usually re uh, referring back to the first individual. So you're two chapters ago, Adam and Christ. So he's talking about Adam. All right. Now, Paul's saying, no, this is it's far from being sinful. All right. The law is holy. It comes from a holy God. It searches out sin. It's righteous because it, it lays just requirements on people and because it forbids and condemns sin. It's good because its purpose is to produce blessing and life. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. Ultimately, as well, these are attributes that express the character of the living God whose com uh, commandment it belongs to. So, here through, from, from verses 7 of 12, Paul's describing, describing the arrival of the Torah in Israel and saying that when the Torah came, Israel had uh, recapitulated the sin of Adam, which was recalling it and doing it again. Israel pictures to the world what happened then in the Garden of Eden. And this is, this is what he, he's saying in, a, in, in, in miniature form, if you will, in Romans 5.20. So, so Paul has now exonerated the law as being synonymous or identical to sin. And he has made clear it's holy, it's just, and it's good. And now he asks another question. And this is the beginning then of the main section where people go, this is Paul as a Christian. Okay. Others say, this is Paul before he was a Christian. And others still say, no, well, this is Paul as a mature Christian. This is going through sanctification. And some have even tried another explanation to avoid admitting that Paul, as a mature, a mature Christian, could have such spiritual struggles with sin. So they acknowledge that Paul is a believer here, but they'll say he's a carnal one, right? And how many of you have heard that? A carnal believer, right? Paul's objector is asking, shall we stay under the law so that sin will increase and grace will increase, right? So if you get the context wrong, you get the subject wrong, and context is king when you're trying to interpret. So part of the context is who is the author writing to, all right? And I'll be honest here, it almost feels like you would have to use the carnal Christian view here to make sense. The honest truth here, though, is that sin isn't, or that this isn't describing someone that's struggling with sin. 
It, it's someone defeated by sin, all right? And I, I know I, I'm giving all this as an intro, but we're going to just go ahead and I'm going to look at it all real fast. <clears throat> Read it. All right. So he's going to say, did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through uh, the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And, here, and here's where it gets all debated. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who did it. All right, he's saying it's not I who did it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be the law, uh, find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And we'll stop there because we won't finish it today. But you see this issue here. People struggle with this. We, okay. This is someone, that sounds like someone that's defeated by sin, not someone who struggled, struggling with it. They were sold to it, it says. To say that Paul describes a Christian in Romans 7 and then in Romans 8 is either contradictory or, or it borders on contradiction. Paul's description of a believer in Romans 8 is contrasted not correlated with the, with the description of a pre-converted Jew trying to find deliverance and salvation through the Mosaic law, okay? We see sin here, not as a struggle, but as a master. And that certainly does not fit the description of a believer in Jesus. Nor does it fit the description of a believer that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit in these verses. There's no mention of, of Christ in these verses. The Christian struggle with sin, and that also there are times of stumbling few are going to disagree with. All right, we, we understand that. We have examples in Scripture of even the godliest of saints falling into grievous sin. Most would readily admit that they have experienced to some degree what Paul describes in Romans 7. But that's not the issue. The issue is what exactly is or who is Paul describing here through verses 14 through 25. So as I stated earlier, the Greek fathers during the first 300 years of the church history unanimously interpreted this scripture as describing a thoughtful moralist, all right? In endeavoring without the grace of God 
to realize his highest ideal of moral purity. This is someone trying to be righteous without the Lord. Now, in the beginning of the of this same chapter in verse five, which we started, Paul gave us one. And stick with me. This is a little confusing, but stick with me here. Paul gives us one a one sentence description of precisely what he expresses in an extended form. We get to the extended form starting at verse 14 through 25 when he says, um, but in verse 5 he says, for while we were living in the flesh, okay, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. All right. That is a condensed version of what is described of the man in verses 14 through 25. Yet, it is agreed that verse 5 are those under the law or unbelievers without Christ, right? And this is another literary style in which they used in the ancient times that in verse 6 we read, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is a condensed version of what's further expounded on in, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Okay, so in Romans 7, 14 through 25, Paul is describing a man of the flesh confronted with the task of having to keep a spiritual law and then finds that he does not have the ability to carry it out on his own. Consequently, he cannot please God. As he, he says later in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, so to make all this more simplistic and easy, Romans 7, 5 describes life under the law. This is the Mosaic law, life of Moses, or body of Moses. It's expounded on in 14 through 25. And Romans 7, 6 describes life in the spirit and then is unpacked in 8, 1 through 11. 14 through 25 cannot refer to a believer since 7, 5 does not refer to a believer. I believe this is proper exegeting of the scripture and how you do it. So you're just getting little mini lessons here on that. Okay. <laughs> so we look at these verses again. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So it was sin, not the law, that brought death. And Paul has already defended the law against the charge that the law was the direct cause of death. He says sin is the culprit. Sin is what killed us. And Paul's summary answer is that sin's use of that which is really and truly good to bring about death is more proof of the exceeding wickedness of sin. Now, in rabbinic literature, it was often said that the law was spiritual and that the meaning of the context usually is that the law is something given by God on Mount Sinai. And Paul has already said this in verse 12, that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we, we, we have to have a correct understanding of what Paul means again by flesh here. Right? Remember, Paul followed the Hebrew understanding 
when using that term, and he made use of it, a uh, wide variety of meanings, as I said. So by flesh here, Paul's talking about the old covenant mode of existence, and because we, we see the spirit flesh contrast that runs all through this section, just like the Adam-Christ contrast that ran through chapter 5, and then you get slave-free contrast in chapter 6. I here is Adam or Israel, and belong, which belongs to uh, the, the uh, Adam solidarity, and its soul is under the sin and the death. The problem's not Torah, it's sin. The part or point of the argument in chapter 6 was that the Christian is not in Adam, not in the flesh. Believers are not in the flesh because we are in the Spirit. So Paul had just said at least six times in Romans 6 that Christians are freed from the slave master of the sin. So how could he then say that he was in bondage to sin here? He couldn't, <laughs> and nor would he. This was the position of Israel under Torah. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is Israel under Torah, seeing what is the right thing to do, delighting in it, and then wanting to perform it, yet constantly falling short. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. In other words, the law is right in calling my sin, sin. The law is good. I'm the problem. Some say that only the believer can agree that the law is good, but that's really that's not true because the old covenant Jew loved the law and certainly thought it was good. So as a part of the body of sin, every person in Adam is under sin's control. Sin dwells in the body of Adam and Moses. Some Christians have misused these verses to excuse sin and deny responsibility for it because they say, it's not me, it's sin. It's not my fault. <laughs> Devil made me do it, right? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Again, there's no mention of the Spirit empowering this person. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, I feel this is Israel under Torah. I refers to Israel according to the flesh, which is Israel and Adam. The majority of teachers and commentators see this passage as autobiographical. Paul's just speaking of his life right then in the present tense. All right. They'll say he was a mature Christian. This is, they say that they see this as a normative Christian life. And I and many others disagree. <laughs> I believe it describes life under law. I believe even if there, it wasn't under law, this is somebody just trying to be good. How many people, they just don't understand God or the gospel or anything, but they try, they do good all their lives and they just hope. I hope, I hope. I hope if there's something on the other side, I hope it's good, right? They can't. It's life under the law, and uh, 
That, that's where I see this, okay? We'll stop there. I'm going to finish the rest of it next week. But um, I, I just can't see whether, when the contrasts are there. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit, no empowering, no being born again. You're, this person's doing all these things they don't want to do. They have no help. They're sold. They're in bondage to sin. You can't be in bondage to sin and be in union with Christ. Because the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the freedom in Christ, is all shown in, 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 in chapter 8. And he will say, who's going to, again, we deal with that phrase, body, right? He'll say, who can deliver me from this body of death? Body of Adam, body of death, right? The law, all this is death. Thanks be it to God, it's Christ Jesus who could do this. So we'll see that next week. And there's a lot. These six, seven, and eight are some of the hardest or most debated or hardest uh, texts in the Bible for, for even some of the most scholarly people. So I'm not saying I've, <laughs> this isn't my, just my idea here. Okay, so any questions, comments, disagreements?